this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampat israel's prime minister benjamin netanyahu's proposals for a judicial overhaul that would limit the powers of the supreme court have triggered massive protests in the country more than 100000 protesters gathered in front of the israeli parliament on the neset and as the country's most powerful trade unions called for a general strike there were flight cancellations at tel aviv international airport and municipality workers tech workers government bureaucrats and most significantly even army reservists joined the pushback against the proposals the us president joe biden also pitched in asking netanyahu to quote and quote walk away from the judicial overhaul prompting israel the israeli prime minister to retort that he does not take decisions based on pressure from abroad on monday however netanyahu announced that he was delaying the judicial changes uh, or postponing it rather actioning it to the next parliamentary session ostensibly to buy more time to build a compromise with the proposal's opponents so what exactly are the implications of the proposed changes do they constitute a threat to israeli democracy as alleged by their opposition leaders and what are the security implications of the fact that these proposals seem to be causing deep divisions in israeli society we explore all these questions and more in this episode of in focus and we have with us stanley johnny the hindus international affairs editor stanley thank you so much for joining us thanks amrit so stanley to start with can you give us a quick overview of what do these proposals actually propose under this broad rubric of judicial overhaul Uh, sampath i think basically there are three proposals which the current israeli government has made and it triggered mass protests but still netanyahu until the other day said that he would he wouldn't surrender to the anarchy and then he would continue uh, with what they call the proposal to return the balance between uh, different branches of the state so uh, if you look at it i think that i mean there are three uh, major proposals one is to give powers to the knesset the israeli parliament powers to override court rulings and then secondly allow the knesset or give the political parties or the government more rights in the selection of judges and then thirdly eliminate the right of the judiciary to assess the legality of uh, the laws passed by the knesset basically to see if uh, they are you know violating the basic laws of uh, uh, israel so put together this would give more powers to israeli to the israeli parliament and the government over the judicial proceedings so the government of the day and they can do it you know the knesset can do it with simple majority which means you need the support of 61 mps mks out of 120 member israeli parliament the current israeli government netanyahu's government has 64 the support of 64 and usually israeli governments are you know 64 is a comfortable majority by the israeli standards you know usually israeli governments are you know they, they have razor thin majorities but with the razor thin majority you can practically override supreme court rulings you can decide who should be the supreme court judges yeah, you can also challenge the supreme court's rights to question the legality of the laws you pass 
So this gives more powers to parliament. In turn, this gives more powers to the government of the day, since they need only the simple majority. And this weakens the Israeli judiciary. This is These are the proposals and this is the uh, you know, main contention. Right. So it is, a, it is a kind of a truism that in a democracy, you are supposed to have checks and balances. And we know also that Israeli democracy doesn't really have a, constitu- a written constitution as such. So what is the current scenario in terms of checks and balances? Because you said that Netanyahu is talking of restoring balance, quote unquote. So with regard to the judiciary, what is the current system? like? Without a written constitution, how does it really work, these checks and balances? Yeah, Israel doesn't have a written constitution, but Israel has basic laws. So the basic laws basically emanate from the Declaration of Independence. And then over the years, you know, starting 1950s to 2018, uh, the Israeli parliament has passed several basic laws. Basic laws pertaining to uh, the parliament itself and the Israeli land and the state institutions, different, you know, including the presidency, the government, the state of economy, the military. And uh, in the 1980, they passed a basic law on Jerusalem because after the annexation of East Jerusalem, and there are basic laws on judiciary and human rights, basically offering dignity, human dignity and liberty to all citizens of Israel. And and the last one in 2018, Israel passed another basic law declaring that, uh, uh, defining Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people and making Hebrew the official language and giving special status to Arabic. So uh, over the years, Israel has passed these basic laws, which operate, which in unison, operate as a semi-constitution. And the Supreme Court has uh, interpreted this and you know, it has set precedence. So the checks and balances are there in the system. In a sense, uh, you have a broad constitutional framework, even though you don't have a written constitution. So, and you have precedence, uh, you know, precedence set by the Supreme Courts and uh, legislation over the years. The Knesset has made uh, several legislation. So this offer some kind of, uh, you know, balancing within the system. But the problem is that now the right wing, the Israeli right wing, because you look at the current government, right, over the past few years, let's say over the past 20 years, Israel Israel's polity has shifted to the right, to the extreme right. So this is what when the government is now saying that they need to restore the balance. What they actually mean is that the polity has shifted to the extreme right, whereas the judiciary hasn't. The judiciary is still operating based on the basic laws, based on the constitutional or based on the interpretations of the basic law, right, or the existing legal system. But the polity has shifted to the extreme right. Why I say extreme right is that you look at the current composition of the government. You know, Likud, which is Benjamin Netanyahu's party, is on the left of the current coalition because they have Shah's United Torah Judaism, both are ultra-Orthodox parties. And you have uh, a smart riches party as well as Itamar ben Givir's uh, um, Jewish power, which are far-right parties. And Itamar ben Givir was a, a, a Jewish extremist, a, a fringe Jewish extremist till the other day. He is now the security minister of the, of Netanyahu's cabinet. So the hard right in Israel, who have been empowered by this political shift, they think that the judiciary doesn't reflect this change that has already taken place in Israel's polity. So they wanted to amend that. 
they wanted to bring in radical changes to that system so i think this is the bedrock of the current tension right so you also spoke a little bit earlier about sometime back about a new law being passed declaring israel as a jewish state i was just wondering is there some kind of a parallel uh, with what's happening in india you know we have this whole hindu hindu rashtra discourse going on and there is also there is similar kinds of conflict here so this and uh, in israel like india maybe not on the same scale is also from what i gather a very diverse society you got jews from all over the world you got arabs you got palestinians who are jewish citizens so is there an attempt to sort of use this jewish state as some kind of a nodal point to sort of uh, you know do this jewish majoritarianism there and as a result of which you want the supreme court on your side so to speak it is uh, that tension is still it has always been there so israel has been defined as a jewish democracy right but the question which you know many historians and uh, sociologists have asked is whether a jewish state or whether a religious state can become a democracy this is a fundamental question so even now when in this debate about the whole debate about the crisis in israel i i don't think that many people have asked this question because this is fundamentally the shift in israel's polity uh, which we discussed earlier it is deeply linked with the continuing occupation of the palestinians because israel on the one side it remains it remains a democratic so to speak country for people who are living uh, in proper israel but at the same time israel is also continuing its illegal occupation of the palestinian people and palestinian territories so in palestine in the in, in the israeli settlements in palestine the israeli citizens living there you know for them the israeli basic laws are applied but for the palestinians living there uh, the military laws are applied in east jerusalem which has been annexed to israel right israel occupied israel uh, took over east jerusalem in 1967 and later on it was annexed to israel and some 300,000 to 400,000 jews are living in east jerusalem so in east jerusalem the jews living in east jerusalem proper israeli laws are applied but arabs they do not have the right to vote in israel's national election so these contradictions are inherent in the whole system of if you look at the whole you know um, land stretching from the land to the river including israel and the palestinian territories so there are two systems uh, existing so the problem is that most of the far right parties and they Uh, rise to power or they took israeli pol- including netanyahu himself they took israeli polity to the right wing by strengthening the occupation by arguing for deepening the occupation for example itamar ben giver wanted arabs to be expelled he is now a senior minister in the cabinet right he had a portrait of goldstone who was the the hebron killer uh, hanging on his wall till the other other day so he he is a self declared jewish extremist everybody knows that so the the, the rightward shift in israel's polity is deeply linked to israel's continuing occupation of the palestinian territories and it is this rightward shift that has triggered this crisis so in a sense israel cannot escape its own history that's what i am trying to say but we are focusing only on this particular legislation that there is a tension between democracy and there is a tension between you know israel's current far right government it's not as simple as that this is a this is a result so would you say that this current crisis is a manifestation or probably symptomatic of the deeper contradiction between what is 
uh, fundamentally, at least uh, in terms of practice uh, democracy and its apartheid uh, practices in occupied territories. Exactly. It is, that's what I am trying to say because it is inescapable for Israel to remain a democracy in its true spirits when it continues the occupation of the Palestinian territories. Right. And what about, uh, there, are, there are some other observers from the opposition who have been imputing far more mundane rather than ideological motives. They are saying that Netanyahu wants the Supreme Court under some kind of control so that you know he, who is himself facing corruption allegations when the, when the, when the cases go to the Supreme Court on appeal, he will have some kind of uh, you know uh, assurance. And secondly, they also believe that uh, the ultra-Orthodox parties, which you referred to earlier, which are part of the government, and they've been wanting exemption for their ultra-Orthodox uh, population from service in the conscript military. Do you think these are also key factors in these judicial uh, proposals? It could be part of that because Netanyahu has, uh, you know, Netanyahu is facing uh, charges. There are at least three charges, I think. And uh, the Attorney General had written to him asking him to stay away from the entire judicial overall because uh, he sensed a conflict of interest. And earlier this year, Netanyahu had to fire one of his ministers, Arya Deri, of the Shah's party, the ultra-Orthodox Shah's party, because of his, the backlog of uh, criminal convictions. And Itamar Ben-Givur himself, uh, he had been convicted earlier for his connection with a terrorist organization. So uh, Israel, uh, you know, this this could be one of the, this is one of the factors because uh, the current Israeli government doesn't want uh, law to catch up or uh, legal issues, legal hurdles to crop up before them, uh, including the prime minister. Uh, that That is a factor. Uh, but at the same time, the larger picture is, I think, uh, is that uh, the current government, they, they look at this and then they see that uh, judiciary remains an obstacle for uh, their push to realize the true Jewish identity of the state of Israel. And they wanted to get rid of that obstacle or they wanted to tame that obstacle so that the Knesset, because in the Knesset, the right wing is now powerful. It's now very powerful. The traditional left parties, they lost their influence. The Labour, where is Labour? You know, Labour has only, I think, four seats in the current Knesset. So uh, even the opposition are centre-right parties like Yeshatid or Blue and White of Benny Gans, Yeshatid of Yer Lapid. They are not, you know, centre-left parties. Even Labour itself, if you look at it from an Indian standard, Labour itself is not a leftist party. It is a centre-left party. But now Israeli polity has been divided into centre-right, right, religious and far-right. So centre-right is Benny Gantz and uh, Yer Lapid. Netanyahu is a right-winger. Shahs and United Torah Judaism are ultra-Orthodox religious parties. And the uh, Zionist uh, party of uh, Smotrich and uh, uh, Jewish power of uh, Itamar Ben-Givir are far-right parties. So this is the broad political spectrum of Israel. So the, in, in the Knesset, the right wing is very powerful. So the extreme right wants that power or wants judiciary to also be or judiciary to be tamed so that they can expand their powers. They can rule as they wish. So this is the main contradiction. And the subtext is that definitely because these far-right politicians, they themselves are facing a lot of legal hurdles and they don't want that those hurdles to come up in their governance. So that could be the subtext. Right. So you, so you were talking about this contradiction between the polity which has shifted uh, 
like clearly right word I and mean, you have a shade of political party which start at probably the center or center right and go all the way to extreme right so is there uh, has there is has there, and and they feel that the supreme court has not kept pace with this and it is still uh, left or center left or whatever so has the supreme court i was just curious has the supreme israeli supreme court in any way at any time applied the brakes on settlement expansion because that seems to be one of the key agendas to which they don't want the supreme court to be an obstacle you know if they want to freely expand jewish settlement so has the supreme court been an obstacle in settlement expansion so far have they ever shot down any kind of proposal in this regard so uh, if you look at the settlement activities no uh, i don't think that israeli supreme court has even assessed the legality of the israeli settlements in the palestinian territories that was a government decision which started when menachem begin was the prime minister the first likud prime minister in the 1970s and then after that both likud uh, likud labor kadima uh, you know all kind of leaders had continued settlement activities now 500000 jews are living in the palestinian territories in in the west bank alone and you have uh, more people living in uh, jerusalem so no the supreme court hasn't stopped the settlement settlements go on even the current government i think plans to continue the settlement also you look at the structures uh, of uh, you know israel's occupation um, so west bank is divided into three areas area a b and c so most of israeli settlements are there in area c this was divided into a b and c as per the oslo accords and in area c israeli laws are applied so uh, israeli government is considering area c as de facto israeli territory so the cabinet can decide if they want to build more settlements and they can do that send more jews to that territory and israeli law is applied there for the jewish people as i said earlier for the palestinians the martial law would be applied or the local laws would be applied so that's what it is and east jerusalem was captured by the israelis in 1967 and later annexed so again israel sees east jerusalem as its legitimate territory and israeli laws are applied there so israeli cabinet can decide whether it should build more settlements or not so the supreme court has not assessed the legality of the settlements even though if you look at it from the geneva convention from the international laws these are illegal clearly because this 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 territories make up the palestinian future palestinian state it was part of historical palestine so israel is an occupier here there are un security council resolutions and israel continues to build settlements and shift population uh, its population to the palestinian territories so from an international legal point of view these settlements are illegal but israeli supreme court has not taken a position on this but at the same time there are specific instances where the israeli supreme court has delayed or frozen uh, settlements when it comes to legal disputes for example the dispute in sheikh jarrah which triggered uh, the most recent conflict in gaza because the israeli because uh, you know the the, settl- the settlers they wanted to evict palestinian families living in sheikh jarrah claiming that those lands belong to them when prior to 1948 so these families who have been living there from the time when east jerusalem was controlled by the jordanians now they face legal challenges towards towards their uh, you know they uh, towards them continuing in those uh, territories so israeli supreme court last year in february 2022 froze the eviction of the palestinians so when there are legal uh, disputes you know 
not Israel Supreme Court, sorry, the Jerusalem Court uh, frozen, froze the eviction. So when there are uh, these legal disputes, the court had made intervention. So that is there. But I think the overall question is that there are other laws which the Knesset passed. I think over 20 laws which the Knesset passed that were revoked by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has revoked about 20 laws passed by the Israeli government. Yeah, over the years passed by oh, the yes. Knesset. Yes, yes. So this, these laws uh, are related to different uh, aspects, not just to settlement, but it had happened. So they see that they have to uh, do away with this, the current government. Also that, uh, you know, whenever, you know, they will, they want to give themselves the powers to override Supreme Court rulings so that the Knesset would be supreme. That's what uh, they want to do. Right. They want the Knesset to be supreme. Now, moving on to a slightly different aspect of this crisis, we have read reports that even members or uh, sections of the armed forces, the reservists, have joined the pushback against the judicial uh, proposals. So, can you talk a little bit about what are the security implications of these protests? One, of course, is sections of the army joining and showing their displeasure. The other is, of course, the deep divisions uh, which seems to be causing in Israeli society. Yeah. So, when Netanyahu came to power this time, in December 2022, he said that his priorities are, you know, blocking Iran. Iran, he wanted to stop Iran from whatever, reaching the nuclear threshold. And then secondly, expand the circle of peace. So what he meant was to build stronger ties with Arab countries. Because in 2020, they had the Abraham Accords and the UAE uh, and other countries, uh, you know, Bahrain, Morocco, they all had normalized ties with Israel. So they, he wanted to expand the circle of peace and, of course, to address the cost of living crisis in Israel, etc., etc. But what happened was that he single-handedly, or his focus was entirely on passing uh, the judicial bills, which triggered crisis, mass protests, etc., etc., so uh, the Israeli, uh, you know, the Israelis, when the Israelis look at it, they face an external threat in Iran, and they wanted to make their position stronger in West Asia by building stronger ties with Arab countries. They also see that the United States is now preoccupied with challenges elsewhere in Europe, trying to defeat Russia, or in Russia, or in or in East Asia, trying to contain China. So they need to address these issues. So from a broader geopolitical point of view, the government's focus should have been on countering Iran and expanding ties with Arabs. And they also see that there are massive changes underway in West Asia because uh, just a few weeks earlier, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran came together. So what Israel wanted was Saudi Arabia to come towards them to expand the Abraham Accords further, like what the UAE did. Instead, the Saudis reached out to uh, Iran through China. So these are the changes that are underway in the region. So at a time when Israel has to focus on these challenges, the Israeli leaders, I mean those who, Israeli leaders and Israeli uh, activists, they see that the government is trying to push through this judicial overhaul that had triggered a crisis. So this is the larger challenges they are facing. And internally speaking, as you pointed out, reservists had uh, refused to get enlisted and diplomats went on strike, etc., etc. So from the point of view of the reservists, I think the turning point of this protest was the defense minister speaking out against the judicial overhaul. 
And why did the defense minister speak out against this? That shows that the defense establishment is not happy because they are facing these larger challenges. And when they have to be prepared for these larger challenges or expand Israel's uh, uh, influence further uh, or face down Iran, Israel is now plunging into a deep internal crisis. So this defense minister is from which party? He's from the Likud party. And he, is, he was a major general. He was uh, part of Kunalu earlier, and then in 2019, he joined Likud. And he's from Netanyahu's own party. So that's what I'm saying. So this uh, uh, the, the protest is basically, which started off by uh, liberal Israelis, etc., etc. But then even the conservative Israel, even the establishment, the former Mossad chief is coming and talking against, uh, you know, talking for democracy. I mean, it, it sounds ironic, but still, that's what we heard on the TV. Uh, so uh, they all turned against uh, this judicial proposal because they found that the current crisis uh, would compromise on Israel's security interests. I think that was the turning point, the defense minister coming out and speaking. Then Netanyahu lost the battle then itself. Uh, so, uh, and the reservists, for the reservists, the problem is that if uh, Israeli judiciary or the supposed freedom of Israel's judiciary is compromised, they fear that. They, they, they would be vulnerable to international litigation because Israel at the end of the day is facing you know a lot of allegations of excesses against the Palestinians, right? There are repeated, there were repeated UN investigative reports that is accusing Israel of crimes against humanity and war crimes, even though no international court of justice uh, judge has issued any arrest warrant against the Israeli prime minister. There are reported investigation reports are there. So if the judiciary's independence is compromised, if Israel loses its influential friends uh, in the West, the military uh, fears that uh, they would be more vulnerable to international litigation and they don't want that to happen. So I think all these elements are there. Larger uh, security challenges from a geopolitical point of view to internal problems they are facing. I think everything forced them, uh, vast sections of the Israeli society to turn against Netanyahu and Netanyahu had to back down. Right. I think that's a very important point you're making, Stanley. It's not just about, it's not as if everybody is suddenly interested in protecting or saving Israeli democracy. There are other interests at play as well, as you said, uh, the context of geopolitical security challenges, uh, the internal divisions and so on, and also the military being worried about being more vulnerable to international jurisprudential interventions on its actions in occupied territories. We are running out of time. One final question uh, before we wrap up. So these changes were supposed to have been ratified by April 2 in the Knesset, but now they've been deferred or postponed uh, to the next session, which will start on April 30th. So what happens then? And uh, will the government, uh, Netanyahu government, survive if it fails to pass the proposals? Because it is, um, I understand, at the mercy of the far-right coalition partners. And will it? do you think it will be able to pass them? So uh, it's difficult to say. Even this time, the decision to delay bills was not easy for Netanyahu because Ben Givir was already revolting. And Netanyahu has made a major compromise. He decided to shift to the National Guard to Ben Givir's ministry. So Ben Givir has got something. In return, he said that, okay, he's not pulling out now. But he wants the laws to be passed. So Netanyahu, he is trying to buy time. And he also wants to hold negotiations with the opposition parties, mainly Yashatid and Blue and White. But the problem is that there, the opposition is not just coming from these two parties. The opposition is coming from the larger sections of society. How Netanyahu is going to build consensus, that is a problem. 
And then secondly, Netanyahu, Netanyahu is, is a comeback king. Never underestimate him. He came to power in 1996, uh, defeating Shimon Peres, and then he made several comebacks after that. So, but this is the toughest, one of the toughest crises he is facing in his career because if he goes ahead with the legislation, he could face major crisis, he could face major you know, anger, public anger, and anger from influential sections of Israel's state and establishment. And if he doesn't, he would lose, he could lose his far-right allies, which means his government would collapse and Israel would go back to election once again. And there is no guarantee that the Likud coalition would come to power. So he is in a, in a, in a very tough position. So I think we have to wait and see what is going to happen uh, after a month. Now, as of now, Netanyahu's plan is to buy time, try to build consensus, at least with some parties. He might be, you know, we, we never know. He might be ready to give in something to the opposition. But it is to be seen whether he would be able to build some, some kind of consensus or put down the public anger or win over his own far-right allies and push through this legislation. We have to wait and see. Right. Uh, Netanyahu, as you said, uh, is uh, currently his strategy seems to be to buy time. But then as you also, I think, very critically pointed out, this opposition is not only coming from political parties in the opposition. There is a huge groundswell of civil society opposition to these uh, proposals. So no, I don't see how Netanyahu is going to be negotiating with civil society if there are 100,000 people who are on the streets. Uh, I don't know to what extent that can be uh, that can sort of be channeled into some kind of a political negotiation. That's something we need to wait and see. Thank you so much, Stanley, for uh, talking to us about this ongoing crisis in Israel. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ambar. Thank you very much. In focus, we'll be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.